excited. Well, that was... I think that was pretty bad, wasn't it? Are you excited? That's more like it. Let's take a seat. This is the opening uh, session of the day, so your energy levels need to start white hot because you'll be red hot by the end of it. Uh, my name is Mark Fennell. Uh, thank you all for coming out. I am joined here by Mark Lewis, Professor Mark Lewis, who is a cognitive neuroscientist, uh, the author of Memoirs of an Addicted Brain, and his most recent book is Biology of Desire, Why Addiction is Not a Disease. And Martin Ford, who spent 25 years working in the area of technology, he's the author of Rise of the Robots and Lights in the Tunnel, Automation, Accelerating Technology and the Economy of the Future. They both love titles with double barrels. Thank you both for coming down. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, give them a round of applause. Okay. Hands up if you've got a mobile phone on your pocket right now. <laughs> right, captive audience. Hands up if you think you could survive a day without it. <laughs> You're all liars, every single one of you. We're here today to work out whether or not technology does have an addictive quality. Mark, I'm going to start with you. Is it possible that technology could be addictive? Sure, uh, anything can be addictive. I mean, people have sh foot fetishes. <laughs> <laughs> you, could, you could be addicted to, uh, yeah, to drugs, to activities. I mean, the, the classic addictions are drugs, booze, porn, sex, gambling. Uh, internet games is now included in the, in the uh, category of addictive uh, activities. So, yeah. Answer is yes. What constitutes an addiction for you? Is it a high? Is it having withdrawal symptoms when it's not there? What, what makes up an addiction for you? I guess a high of some sort is always part of it, but we shouldn't think of a high as necessarily pleasure. It's often relief or a sense of disconnection or a sense of being okay, which you don't get otherwise. So it's coming from the addictive activity. Um, but it doesn't, as I say, it doesn't necessarily involve drugs. So it doesn't necessarily involve withdrawal symptoms, although you can get physical withdrawal symptoms from stopping heroin, and you can get psychological withdrawal symptoms from stopping anything, whatever it is that you happen to be addicted to. Okay. Martin, you're not on Facebook. Oh, you're not a particularly huge fan of social media. Do you think it can have an addictive quality? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I to some extent, am addicted to my phone in spite of the fact that I don't use what you might think of as the most addictive elements of all of this. I mean, uh, for me, it's more email. It's uh, browsing the web. It's checking news. I, I would characterize it as almost a kind of a nagging curiosity, constantly wondering, is there something there that, that I need to check, that, I, that, that you know, wasn't there two minutes ago, that I need to grab my phone? Um, but I would think that for someone who is really into Facebook and constantly looking at the feed and, and so forth, that it might be you know, an order of magnitude more than, than what I experienced, because I, you know, it really has a, a different interactive quality that you don't see with other with other realms, I think that this technology is, is becoming very compulsive. Mark, when somebody has a, a piece of technology that, that works that they keep on going back to, it's because it fulfills a, a psychological need. And yeah. I, we were talking about this earlier that you know, Facebook kind of works because it replicates existing social structures. Do you, right. do you think it's necessarily a new concept? The concept? The concept that technology and connecting to other people can be addictive. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, in a way, 
<laughs> the development of drugs is, uh, is also technology. So we went from you know, opium to morphine to heroin. That's technology, <laughs> right? And we, we went from distilling corn and wheat, or whatever it is, how you make beer, in Egyptian times to, you know, now we have uh, amazingly delicious scotch that it's like 51% alcohol. <laughs> that's technology too. <laughs> so no, it's not a new idea. Uh, but I don't think that's what you mean. You... Uh, specifically in that area of connecting with other people over technology. Yeah. <laughs> but we can go on to talking about whiskey at any moment you like. I'm really happy to do that. I love the Japanese whiskeys, aren't they? Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, yeah, the attachment system has been around for actually hundreds of millions of years. All mammals have attachment systems by which they connect to other members of their species. Primarily their mothers initially, and then other conspecifics, other members of their, of their group, their tribe, their whatever it is. That system is deeply engraved in our brain. Our brain is structured to attach us to anything that's uh, emotionally compelling and, and necessary and uh, to which we can you know, gain, from which we can gain satisfaction, uh, care, meaning, protection, and so forth. So that system, it's an open system. Um, it's, it, it's geared up by learning. It's not hardwired. That's why you can become attached to your grandmother as much as your mother or your principal or your teacher or your Boy Scout leader. But by the same token, you can also become attached to your device, to your iPhone, I think. I think it's the same system that is connecting you to anything that gives you that feeling of, of satisfaction and uh, uh, okayness and feeling, you know, feeling okay, feeling good. The term addiction is kind of oddly pejorative. Is it necessarily a bad thing? Well, we don't think of addiction as a bad thing when we're addicted to our kids. It's actually a good thing. It's good to be addicted to your kids. If you weren't, you'd probably, you know, throw them out the window from time to time. <laughs> but, but we love them. The day's very young. We might get there. Who knows? Yeah, I've gone through two generations of childbearing to take it from me. But, but, but we're addicted. We love them. And, and uh, we can't stop thinking about them. We see their good qualities when nobody else can. We, uh, we tend to minimize their bad qualities. So in that sense, addiction and addiction to a partner is also really important in our species and in our culture. So after the initial lust phase of the relationship starts to diminish, you want to have that attachment, that addiction, so that you can stick together and raise kids. It's really our job. Martin, everybody in the room said they had a phone. Everyone in the room said they could go a day without it, which was lies. Um, in that sense, for you, do you think you could go a day without using technology? I could, but it would, I would notice it. I mean, it would bother me. Um, I would probably feel that I was much less productive. I would, I would feel, again, this nagging curiosity of what's happening that I'm not tied into. So, yeah, I think that it's, it's a very strong compulsion. It's not at the level of a heroin addiction, perhaps, where you've got this, this innate biological connection that where it caused genuine physical pain and anguish if you don't have it, but it, it's still very strong. And what do you think that does to us as a society? Because your book is most recently about how the rise of automation is really changing social and economic structures, but what do you think it does to us internally as people, having that need to constantly use uh, devices that connect us to the wider world? Well, it's definitely changing us, and, and there are two kind of dimensions you can look at this. One is the, the the addiction or the, the attachment to the technology itself, to the device. And I think the other thing is what you were alluding to other, uh, earlier, which is that there's also this connection to other people. And, and in this case, technology is really becoming an amplifier. You know, as, as Mark said, we've got this biological 
propensity to attach to other people. But historically, that's really been small groups of people, our family and so forth. But now we've got this technology you, you can attach to, in, in some sense, unlimited numbers of people, you know, and, and distributed throughout the world. So it's just a vast amplifier, really, of, of our basic, you know, biological propensity. So it's, it's very interesting that there are really two separate dimensions there. And one thing that I think we will see in the future is that the machines are going to be increasingly lifelike, and we will begin to, you know, really develop genuine, almost human-like attachments to our devices and to the technology out there as well. Person sitting there staring at Instagram, they've posted a selfie and nobody's hit like yet and their anxiety is rising up and rising up and rising up. Yeah. Mark, what do you say to that person? You know... Um, that person's me, by the way. I'm just going to put that right out. <laughs> <laughs> I was, sitting, I was sitting in the restaurant or bar or whatever last night. At the, uh, there were two guys at the table next to me, and they were both talking into their phones for an hour. I mean, they didn't talk to each other at all. So it's, yeah, it is an amplifier. I mean, I think that's a very good way of putting it. It also, uh, so what are you going to say to that person? It's effective, you know, like heroin is more effective than opium, like scotch is more effective than uh, corn liquor. Uh, it's, what are you going to say when something works better than anything else? Stop doing it? No, that doesn't work well. That doesn't, uh, it doesn't do it. So I think you might have to um, highlight what they're missing, if they're missing something, and help them, help them uh, conceptualize that there's actually a big hunk of life that is passing them by if all they're doing is staring into this whatever or you know, involved in these very habitual modes of behavior. They're, they're, losing the, they're losing the titillation of novelty, of person-to-person -person interaction, of all kinds of things that they might otherwise be engaged with. Do you think they're necessarily losing person-to-person -person activity? Because, you know, we still catch up in person, we still talk to each other, we just have this added level of ambient awareness about the rest of the world. There's that, but you are also losing something. I mean, I've, I've actually started doing some counselling via Skype um, with people thousands of miles away. And uh, so I think it's pretty good. I can see them and I can hear them. What else do I need? But when you're right in the same room with the person, there's so much more going on when you're talking to someone face-to-face. -face. Besides the pheromones and, you know, the actual chemicals that we're exchanging, there's the really subtle changes in body posture, mm. facial expression, uh, that you just don't perceive unless you're face-to-face. Face-to-face is special, and it also opens the possibility for all kinds of other intimate uh, forms of connection. And I don't just mean sex, but anything, whether it's a hug or whatever. Your wife works in video games, video games to help with mental health. Talk us right. through how that works. So she wants, we all know that video games are extremely powerful. And as I said, there's now a category in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association for video game addiction. It's now being considered an addiction. But what that really means is it's powerfully attractive. It's just powerfully attractive and people develop a, a, an ongoing connection with it and they, they want to go, my kids you know, want to go back to it as much as we allow them to. So she wants to use that power for good, not evil. And what we say about the atom, right? Atomic energy, use it for good, not evil because it's powerful. So instead of, if your kid is, um, say has a preclinical anxiety disorder, and a lot of kids do so suffer from some anxiety or depression, uh, instead of dragging them to the therapist's office once a week, which is really difficult and nobody wants to go and it's stigmatizing and all the rest of it, she's developing video games that 
allow these kids to interact with their computer and, and, and their avatar is in this environment where they're exposed to risks, which they can overcome, get reinforced for learning how to relax um, within this kind of risky environment and really adjust and promote their emotion regulation capabilities in a way that's very powerful. That's using the technology in, a, I think, a very uh, productive way. Okay. Um, when I mentioned to people that we were, I was doing this talk, uh, one of the weird things that kept on popping up was people would joke that um, certain fans of certain kinds of technology were sub somewhat cult-like, and the ongoing joke is that, you know, people that are into Apple are part of a cult. Yeah. Is, there, uh, is there overlap between cultish behaviour and love of certain devices, or is that just a thing that people with Samsung say? <laughs> Uh, so you're asking if there's a cult, like, uh, yeah. Yeah, where, where, are the, where are the overlaps there, if any at all? W with other addictions? Mm. Well, with cult-like behaviour. I'm not sure, but I think that you, you, whatever you're deeply invested in as, as a kind of repetitive behaviour that's attractive and compelling, it's always going to spread out into a social, uh, some kind of social entity, social mm. definition, social identity. Uh, so... Yesterday, where was I yesterday? Uh, in Brisbane. And uh, there was, I was in a panel that included a heroin addict who talked about what it was like to be a heroin addict for five years. And she was part of a group of other heroin addicts because they did the same things and they did them in the same way. And they provided each other with a kind of sense of justification or at least comfort. I mean, they knew it was bad. Mm. But there was a sense of, you know, we're doing this together. And so there's something legitimate or authentic about it. So... Yeah, I don't see why that shouldn't also be the case with whatever device you're uh, connected to. Take that, Android users. Um, how about you, Martin? Do you think there is an overlap between slightly cultish you know, behaviour? I wouldn't really characterise as, as a cult because, to me, a cult is, is where people are attached to a particularly charismatic individual or a very strong ideology or something like that. I think there's a difference between a, a kind of a chemical addiction, as you would see with a drug, and and this focus on, you know, um, a cult figure. And, and you hear about the cult of Apple or the cult of Steve Jobs, but I don't think that's really what's going on. I think it's, it's an attachment to the, the technology itself rather than, um, you know, a corporation or a person. So I, I, I wouldn't quite characterize it in that way. Yeah, but these things spread out, right? I mean, from the attachment to the device or the drug or gambling, they just spread out. I mean, your brain is really good at devising, uh, finding, discovering social connections for whatever it is that you're doing. So it may not be about a leader or an ideology, but it may be about uh, feeling, you know, feeling out who else does this and who am I a part of? That's a really fundamental human, uh, um, you know, um, uh, uh, I don't know, tendency, instinct. Mm -hmm. Both of you are parents, and we were talking a little bit earlier about how you go about regulating uh, your kids' approach to technology. Martin, tell me about what you do with your daughter. We, we are very informal about it, but you know, the general sense is that she should spend a lot more time reading than she spends uh, you know, playing around with, with screens and video games and so forth. We do allow some of that, but you know, she's reading all the, the Harry Potter books now, and she spends much more time doing that than she does playing video games. So I think it's all right as long as you limit it. But I do worry a lot about those children that are not subject to any regulation at all. I, I, it's hard for me to imagine how it can be good as a child to, you know, to grow up and really just spend a disproportionate amount of time doing things like playing video games uh, and, and missing out on you know, other kinds of more important interactions. 
Mark? But, but what we do, because my wife is into developing video games and seeing... <laughs> you don't really have an excuse, do you? <laughs> I'm getting really into it myself. <laughs> These things are great. Uh, but we also control it. We limit it. They're only allowed to be on, on, um, online during the weekend or on screen or whatever it is. But what she does is she, she uses that attraction to get them to play really good games. And there are, you know, there's first-person shooter games, as they call them, where you're just basically killing, you know, uh, person, persons or, or simulations of persons. And there's other games where you're exploring environments and overcoming obstacles and learning to trust your instincts and developing spatial cognitive skills to... She, she's even now getting them to... I'll give you twice as much game time if you, if you play this game. And this game teaches them how to code. It actually teaches them how to, how to code in JavaScript. You know, they're nine. <laughs> so so she's, she's definitely taking this, this attraction and using it for a very beneficial purpose. Martin, you said something really interesting, which is about um, the relationship between reading, like uh, a written book, and screen time. Why is, uh, why is reading a book in your family more valuable than screen time? I suppose it's sort of a historical bias. I mean, because when I grew up, it was, it was the main thing. I mean, you know, I think my daughter, to some extent, is addicted to Harry Potter. She, she wants to read that book more than she wants to uh, play video games. And, I, and for some reason, we perceive that as a, as a positive thing. And I think that um, maybe it is just a bias, but I, I do think that... that, that Immerging yourself in a novel and, and using that creative aspect of your mind to sort of enter another world and, and create that environment mm-hmm. in your own mind rather than having it displayed for you on a screen um, is, is uh, a higher order mental process. It's something that we should celebrate and continue to, um, you know, to really advocate for. I, it's worrisome that everyone moves to what we might think of as passive forms of um, entertainment, where everything is just displayed for you and you don't really need to use your own brain to, to interpret it. You, you know, I, I hate to make things worse, but um, with the, one of the games my wife is working on developing now uses neurofeedback. So actually you are using your brain, but in a very sort of passive way. We put on EEG uh, electrodes in a little portable cap, which directly through um, Bluetooth tells the computer computer screen what images to show. And when these anxious kids relax, um, things change on the screen. For example, the scary, scary thing that's shimmering in the corner turns out to be a fridge or a cat or something or a chest of drawers. Well, but I agree with you. I agree that there is certainly strong value in doing that creatively through effort rather than just having it happen passively. You've spent 25 years working in technology. You've worked in Silicon Valley. How do you think your relationship with technology has changed since when you started first working in the industry? Well, I mean, I think it's changed dramatically for everyone, you know, and and the same for me. When I started out, computers were these huge things that that sat on your desks. And, uh, you know, before that, they they were big things that were in rooms with people surrounding them and and you couldn't approach them. Now, of course, they've become these these personal devices that we all have very intimate relationships with. And, And that process is going to continue. Now, of course, people are talking about wearable technology where... 
uh, or, and we're talking about the Internet of Things, where all of this, this technology may be built into our clothing or into our environment everywhere, all around us, is becoming more and more intrusive and more ubiquitous. It's just um, all around us, and that you know, there's going to be no stopping that. So I, I think that. Um, we're just kind of on the leading edge of this, and, and the things that we worry about today are, are likely to be amplified greatly in the future. What aspects of wearable technology do you think will actually take off? Because we saw Google launch Google Glass, and it kind of it didn't really catch on in a consumer sense. They'll probably use it in industries, but what aspects of, of uh, wearable technology do you think will actually work? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I had the same feeling. I'm not a big proponent of it. Again, I'm a bit of a Luddite on all of this to some extent because I, I don't use Facebook, so I'm not, I'm definitely not on the leading edge of, um, you know, utilizing this personal kind of technology. But when I look at the Apple Watch, to me, it's not very compelling. I mean, I really... I, I, As somebody I who paid 800 bucks yeah, for one, no, it's yeah, really yeah, not. It's, it's not, <laughs> and I... Um, There's no bloody apps for I mean, the damn it's, thing. it's like a little... <laughs> iPhone on your wrist instead of in your pocket, and but you still need an iPhone in your pocket. Yeah. So I, I, I don't really quite see it. But <laughs> eventually, presumably, um, these technologies will, I think, become more prevalent. And I suspect that the most compelling aspect of it will be the connection. It'll be the fact, not just that you have access to this device, but it, that it somehow connects you more intimately to everything else that's out there. Where would you put a piece of wearable technology on yourself, Professor? Where would I put it? <laughs> Probably my ears right now. I think I'm going slightly deaf. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, this... Um, I think a note, a note of hope here is that we talk about this inevitable um, progression forward, this unstoppable, you know, the way technology just keeps advancing and advancing. Well, no, it doesn't. Have you noticed that bicycles haven't changed in their basic design in the last, what, 20, 30, 40, 50 years? And in the case of hipsters around Sydney, they've got a design that existed in the 1960s and just stopped. Single gear. But, you know, but basically, bicycles evolved to their optimal, um, shall we say, their optimal or almost optimal uh, configuration. And evolution works that way. So you get species, well, you get like, you know, cockroaches have been around for a long time. Why? Because they evolved to a form and a shape that works really well for being a cockroach. And they don't have to keep evolving. Mm. And I think it's the same with uh, technological evolution. So bicycles evolved until they were, you know, just about right. And there's no place further to go. So if you, um, if you transpose that to the idea of, uh, of the kinds of technology that we're talking about, I think there are optimal points at which things will come to, to rest because we can't go much further because they do what we need them to do. If you want to take it to drugs, no one's developing a better drug than heroin for getting you to that place because heroin does it. Right? So evolutionary um, pathways have natural resting points, and I think that might offer us some hope from this incessant, you know, incessant uh, movement forward. That's an interesting idea. Do you, do you think it's possible that certain kinds of technology will just cap themselves and, and reach a defined resting place? In very specific areas, that may be true, but overall, I, I, I don't see that at all. No, I, I think that you know, I, I believe pretty strongly in the idea of accelerating technology. Now, in terms of wearable devices, I mean, it's not clear how do we get from cell phones to the next disruptive thing. But again, I, I think that 
the specific devices are, are becoming less important. What's going to be more important is going to be what we think of as the cloud. It's, the, it's what we're connecting to. And out in that cloud, there's going to be all of this artificial intelligence that's going to get smarter and smarter and offer more and more capability. And that's, that's really the thing that's going to accelerate and drive all of this. And you know, we will all have various ways to connect into that, but it's going to be that connection that's going to be the really... Um, disruptive thing going forward, I think. When we talk about artificial intelligence, often there's like the joke, it's like Skynet, but you spent a lot of time researching this and automation in the workplace. What do you think uh, artificial intelligence will look like? How is it really going to manifest in people's lives in the next 10 years? Well, you know, the issue that I've been writing about the most is, is the fact that I think it will displace a lot of jobs, especially people that do more routine work. You're going to have artificially intelligent algorithms that can do all kinds of routine work across the economy, whether it's blue-collar work that gets taken over by robots or whether it's people working in an office. Uh, so that's going to be one of the big disruptions. The other thing is that you know, it's going to amplify all of this addiction to, to the technology itself in terms of personal technology. You know, Facebook right now has got a research lab and they've hired some of the very best artificial research researchers in the world, and they're working specifically on building an AI system that can engage in conversation. So it would be like mm -hmm. having a conversation with a human being. You'd pick up your phone and you'd be talking to it, you know, just as if you were on the phone with a person, but it would be a machine. And you can imagine the disruption of that, both economically in terms of potential impact on jobs, but also in terms of our relationship with our devices. I mean, a lot of people are going to, if there's a line between what's technology and what's human, that line is, is going to sort of evaporate for a lot of people. A lot of people won't be able to make that distinction, and, and that's going to make the whole thing more and more addictive in the future. I have this mental image of talking to Facebook, and every time I say something, it just says, like but that's how I imagine it going. Can you imagine a future where your job as a neuroscientist, uh, in terms of the sort of counselling you do, where some of that might be taken over by an artificial intelligence? In terms of counselling, not so much. In terms of neuroscience, yeah, obviously technology is, is hugely important for measuring and recording what's going on in the brain. But, you know, I think, in a way, I disagree. I think that there are built-in limits. Why? Because we have particular bodies, and evolution, biological evolution, just doesn't happen that fast. So our bodies are not going to change hugely in the next few hundred years. They're just not. So we've got, you know, four limbs, most of us, and five senses and whatever, and we need to do certain things, eat, sleep, have sex, you know, etc. Um... So we can build on, uh, we can build on um, uh, uh, devices that, that can enhance or, or amplify the effectiveness or efficiency of some of these processes. But then, you know, that's it. Then we're done. Mm. And I think unless our bodies change, uh, the limits are built in. Mm. It's interesting what you were saying about how heroin was the, the apex of a, of a certain kind of drug, but we do see waves of different drugs taking off. You know, for example, in Australia, the last year we've been talking a lot about ice. Yeah. Now, is that because ice is a better drug or the economic environment around it where ice is easier to make or import and that's why there's a wave of interest in it? Or, or, is, or actually have people changed and have a preferred taste for a different drug? Um, yeah, most addictions are acquired tastes, but... Okay, so in the world of addiction, you know, again, you have these endpoints, like gambling addiction, which is extremely serious for some people, extremely serious. Uh, it's kind of reached its apex. We have casinos, which have all these various possibilities. It's hard to think of a new game that hasn't been thought of, right? Uh, a new kind of risk-taking that hasn't been thought of. We've got 
from bungee jumping to skydiving. And then with drugs, we've got heroin in the opiate category. We've got methamphetamine. And methamphetamine is a very efficient drug. It does all the things that you would want to do to be wide awake, feel empowered, and, and highly connected with your environment. So where else would you go? Okay. I, I mean, I think that these are natural resting points in the evolution of products, whether it's drugs or technology. Okay. Who here has questions? Okay. What I'd like you to do is make your way to either that microphone over there, number one, or that microphone over there, number two. Okay. And those of you that didn't put up your hand, start thinking of questions. All right, number one. Hey, um, this is a question from Martin. I mean, you kind of talk about the, the evolution of technology and, and it becoming indistinguishable from being human. And I guess in the last couple of years, we've heard about things like transhumanists who fundamentally believe we may exceed and, and surpass the limits of the human body. Can you just reflect on that and, and kind of give your view on, on where that's going? Like, will people voluntarily give up elements of their humanity to be at one with their uh, technological nirvana? Right. I, I mean, I think that's an important trend. It, you know, where I live in Silicon Valley, there is a, communi a community of, of what we call singularians, people that believe in, in the coming singularity when machines are going to become intelligent and, and they believe that we will be augmented by all this technology and that uh, really it will be a part of evolution, that we're going to evolve into something entirely new down the line uh, and then many of us may end up living forever. So they have some very, very radical ideas and there are people that genuinely believe in that sort of thing. I'm kind of agnostic on all of that. I do think that, that no matter what, there's going to be a massive disruption. I mean, Mark seems to believe that there's kind of an end point to this, that we're, that we're limited by our biological structure. I, I mean, these people obviously don't believe that. They think we're going to evolve, evolve into something entirely new. I don't know what the outcome is going to be, but I, I do think that is going to be massively disruptive. Just on that, Mark, these people, singularians, as a mental health expert, these, <laughs> I'm trying to try and frame this in a non-pejorative Do they have a mental health problem? I don't know. I mean, it's a really intriguing proposition. Uh, and I'm a bit ag agnostic too. I, I, it could go in all kinds of different ways. Uh, so, but yeah, there is this tendency to want to achieve this optimal thing and kind of imagine living forever. I mean, what a terrible idea. <laughs> you know, like, really? Well, really? You, yeah, you, you want yourself to live forever, right? But think about all the other people in the world. Do you want them to live forever? <laughs> no. It's not about them. It's about me. <laughs> exactly. So that's the problem. All right. Uh, we have a question over at, at number two. Um, I was just wondering, in terms of if we reach hard AI, um, do you think the ethics and morality of that entity would be predefined by us, or do you think it would actually develop its own in spite of coding? Well, there's a big debate over that. I mean, uh, you know, we, we've had these people like Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk, these very high-profile, very smart people warning that if we someday have real artificial intelligence, meaning machines that can think like human beings and, and presumably would soon become much smarter than us, then they'll go beyond this and, and that, uh, you know, potentially maybe they won't have a use for us if, if their morality is not programmed. So there have actually been some, there are a number of small think tank type organizations that have been set up specifically to focus on the issue of how do you build friendly artificial intelligence? How do you build morality into them so that, you know, they won't want to wipe us out when they become smarter than us? Uh, so they're, they're really Good people goal. thinking about Good that. Good Whether or not that's... <laughs> 
my personal view is that's not something we need to worry about soon, but you know, you can never say never. Um, another point, though, would be that, that do you really want to build human morality into these smarter machines because our own morality is not really that great? One of the problems is that if you start putting human qualities into the machines, you might get all of the abnormal stuff, too. I mean, you could end up with a pathological superintelligence. That, that would be unfortunate. I think. Somewhat, yeah. Actually, I mean, with this, we talk about um, artificial intelligence and there is the sort of image that you have, but what are the specific areas in which it, it actually is going to operate? Because you talk a lot about um, how kind of repetitive middle-class office jobs, they're the sorts of things that are most likely to disappear. Right, for the foreseeable future. I'm thinking in terms of the next decade or two, I think that those types of jobs are going to be very susceptible, um, but this, you know, clearly the, the technology is accelerating. There's, there are a number of research, research initiatives right now into what we call creative machines. I mean, you've, there are algorithms that can write symphonies. There are algorithms that can paint original works of art. Uh, there are algorithms that have done uh, original design of, of various devices and so forth and have come up with patentable uh, inventions mm -hmm. and so forth. So mm -hmm. the machines are, are already, in a sense, moving beyond just that creative thing. So, it, you know, it's, again, it's going to be quite disruptive and I think unpredictable. So mm -hmm. it, it's really hard to say exactly how it's all going to play out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And a question over at number one. <laughs> Hello. I'm, I'm intrigued between the, um, the bridge between neuroscience and uh, information technology in relation to artificial intelligence. Um, more specifically, do you, do you think that uh, once we are going to, to fully understand the nature of, uh, of human uh, consciousness, mm -hmm. uh, is going to be the, the opening to, to develop a truly intelligent machine? Thank you. So, so this is... Uh, this is what they call the hard question. <laughs> that's really, that's the name of it. Is that a it. technical term? It's absolutely. It's a technical term in, in neurophilosophy. Ah, oh, right. The hard question. The hard question is, what is consciousness and why do we need it? Or do we need it? Or is it just a kind of, uh, you know, adjunct? Um, well, some people think that consciousness is actually the, the kind of carburetor. Does, does anyone still know what a carburetor is? <laughs> no. It used to be a part of cars, uh, where the gas and the air get mixed together. So, so consciousness, consciousness could be that. Uh, and so it could be a really important part of intelligence, aspect of intelligence and creativity and novelty. Uh, we don't understand where, how consciousness works in the brain. People have been trying for decades. There's a kind of primary consciousness that probably reptiles have, which comes from the brainstem, and there's a more sophisticated kind of consciousness that comes from the prefrontal cortex that has to do with continuing to revise one's thoughts and dig up and, and figure out what one has just been thinking and what one is about to think of next so that you can sort of uh, identify yourself on a continuum, that's a higher level of consciousness. It seems to me that that latter kind of consciousness might be accessible to machines uh, because they can track their own progress, yeah. Uh, but the first kind of consciousness, which is like consciousness of the color green or red or movement or stuff like that, or what it feels like to be hungry, I can't see how machines would ever have that because machines don't have bodies. And you really need a body to have that kind of consciousness. Martin, in your research, when you're going through and talking to people that are working in this area, are there conversations around consciousness? Are they 
talking about it as a, as a as a as a as an aspect of development? Right. I mean, there's a debate over that. Many of the issues that Mark has talked about are being looked at by by researchers in artificial intelligence. And the point he just made about machines needing a body, they, they understand that fully. And, and one of the, the big thrusts now is that you've got to build real artificial intelligence in a robot so, so that the machine will have a body that it can interact with the world because that's perceived as being um, critical to this. But there, there are a lot of, you know, research. There's a, a guy named Henry Markham in, in, um, who's building what's called the Blue Bane blue brain system, which is going to be a huge simulation of the human brain. Mm -hmm. And he believes that once they achieve that, that the thing will just wake up and that they can, they can teach it just like they would teach a child. And it will, I mean, whether that's true or not, I, you know, who knows? But uh, there is a, a certain segment of, of researchers that, that believe it's possible and, and that the way to do it is essentially to follow the, you know, to do some sort of a simulation of the way the brain works. But, but the problem is, taking it a step further, you not only need a body, you need emotions. Emotions are about bodies because emotions stem from having needs and having pain and having hunger and uh, requiring, requiring. So how do you build a machine that requires? You know, not, just, not just an algorithm, that you, know, you need to stack up a certain number of symbolic resources, but actually has feelings. I mean, it seems without that, you're not going to get that kind of primary consciousness. Well, I mean, that's the debate. I mean, it's the, oh, there are a lot of people who argue that, that consciousness is, is ultimately an algorithm, that it is, I mean, you, you, you say you have a need, but what is that? You, you could, I mean, at some, at some level, the brain is, is a machine. Uh, you, you can't, I, I don't know that you can make the argument that a biological brain is, is somehow fundamentally different from something that could be done in silicon. Because the brain is made up of cells that are connected to cells all over the body. It is a part of the body and is, it, it is an organic uh, 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 entity. And in that sense, it's not like a machine. But if you replicate the inputs uh, to a sufficient degree of granular detail, can you not replicate those needs? I don't see how. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's involved. Uh, for example, pain, suffering, uh, uh, injury, and death are what we have evolved with, through, by. Mm. Um, that's how organisms evolve. So I don't know how you can build in needs in an entity that doesn't, uh, that isn't fundamentally uh, reacting to those forces. Okay, but let me just give you an example. One of the emerging technologies we see right now is virtual reality. And this is the idea that you're going to put on this headset and essentially it's going to trick your brain into believing you're in this other world. And, and it does that essentially by bypassing this mechanism of, of connection to the rest of your body, right? Yeah, but there's still a brain in the middle of all that. It's a human, fleshy brain. But you're lying to it. You're telling it yeah, that yeah, it's but, a but, place but that it's, it's, not, it's not dependent on the connection to the rest of your body anymore, not really, because it, it, it's deceiving it, right? It's making you believe something else. So it, what that implies to me is that, I mean, there is a separation there. There's, you know, the, there is a connection between your brain and your body, but I, I don't think it's quite right to say that every cell of your brain is somehow connected to every cell of your body and, and that... that you know, actually, it's all so complicated that you can't, you can't replicate a brain as, as, as a separate entity. I mean, I, I'm not sure that that's right. 
No, I really disagree. I, I, they actually are. This is good. Uh, I thought we were just going to agree on everything. This is great. No, every cell in your brain actually is connected to every cell in your body because every cell in your brain is connected to other cells in your brain. And eventually you get to the cells that have axons that go all the way down to your toes. They go everywhere, to the walls of your stomach, uh, to you know, the receptors in your skin, to everything. I mean, it really is all connected. Uh, the, what a neuron is, is it's a cell with strings attached. That's what a neuron is. It's a new kind of cell which evolved oh, a few hundred million years ago. Um, and it evolved for the purpose of connecting all these different parts of us. That's its function. You can't have a multicellular organism with eyes at one end and toes at the other end unless they're connected. It doesn't work otherwise. What if you lied to every single one of them? But you're not lying with virtual reality. You're, putting, you're filtering and you are simulating, mm. but you are nevertheless, something's going into your retina, and your retina is attached to your optic nerve, which is attached to your thalamus, which is attached to all that other stuff. You're not getting rid of that. And this is why when you play with an Oculus Rift, you always end up throwing up. All right. Um, trust me, I've done it. It's awful. Uh, question at number two. Now I sound really dumb asking my question after that. Discussion. How do you think I feel? I'm on a stage. Um, as someone who went through uni without Facebook, I'm eternally grateful for that. Um, and I struggle with the same issues now having a 10-year-old as both of you discussed discussed with your children. I guess my question would be more toward Mark. If you're seeing in your practice uh, difficulty about people to disengage, and I'm not talking disengagement with the actual device, but disengaging with a toxic relationship or disengaging with a friend you have on Facebook that you don't want to defriend because of the social implications of that, and how that might affect future generations being able to let go of the past or let go of something that you don't want to remember. Yeah, so I, I've just started this counseling practice. Although I got trained as a clinical psychologist years ago, my, my foray into addiction research in the, last, in the last five or six years, I finally thought, okay, maybe I'll try counseling with addicts. And so I've got a couple of heroin addicts that I'm... Um, so what I'm trying to get them to disengage with, obviously, is heroin, which is, is not easy. Um, so you gentle them through it, and you try to... Uh, provide them and help them provide themselves with other stuff that makes them feel okay. And that's the basic formula, right? And I think that works with relationships too. People who remain, for example, in abusive relationships, this is very much like addiction. It's a compulsive bonding, uh, you know, reiterating of a kind of behavior that maintains a bond which is ultimately destructive. And again, what you need to do to help people get out of abusive relationships is to show them other ways to fulfill those needs. In a way, it's simple, but in another way, it's very difficult. All right. There's another question over at number one. Ooh, I think I've reached my vertical limit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, Martin, you mentioned the rise of robots, the blue-collar jobs, white-collar jobs, routine jobs that could be replaced by technology. And I believe that everything that could be automated and it's based on rules would be automated and replaced by robots. And this is also around the white-collar jobs, like thinking about the legal professions, thinking about the medicine professions, etc. Like, we have Watson of IBM that gives a better diagnosis than a doctor <laughs> that has to study a lot and captures everything in 30 seconds. Now, the question that I want to ask is, like, if the blue-collar jobs are replaced by ro robotics, the mental creative jobs are replaced by the creative machines. 
what will be the role of human beings in the future? We are seven plus billion people, and what are we going to do with ourselves? Right. Well, Facebook. <laughs> uh, Facebook is like Sopranos, maybe not. Uh, you know, that's the question, and, and that's what um, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about. But there are actually two questions there. The first one is, how are people going to survive economically if they don't have jobs? Because people need incomes. The second question is, uh, you know, what are they going to do with their time? How are they going to find fulfillment in life? And both of those things are important. My feeling is that the income distribution issue is, is going to come to the forefront first. And that's going to be an enormous political challenge for us to make sure that everyone has access to some sort of a livable income if we do indeed enter a world where a lot of people simply don't have what you might call a marketable skill that's going to that's gonna get them a job. So I think eventually we may need a radical solution to that, something like a guaranteed income where everyone will have access to, to an income. And that will solve the economic side of it in terms of the, the fulfillment side. That's something we'll have to work out. And I think that in the world that exists today, most people get both the income and this sense of purpose and, and a way to occupy their time from the same thing. It comes in one package. We call that a job. I think that in the future, we may need to decouple those two things so that you get the income from one place and you get this sense of, of purpose and fulfillment for, from somewhere else. Martin, you call yourself a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist. What's the long-term optimism? <laughs> well, the long-term optimism is that we, could, we can imagine a very utopian future. We can imagine a world where no one has to do a job that they hate, no one has to do a dangerous job or a really unpleasant job. The, the technology takes care of all of that. And people then have the ability to spend time doing what they want to do, hopefully not playing video games, but spending more time with their families, you know, doing something that, that allows them to grow intellectually. You can play video games with your family. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, more time for leisure and so forth. So it could be great. I mean, you know, I, I heard someone when I spoke yesterday said that she dreamed of 100% unemployment. And that, that, in a utopian sense, that, that's not a bad goal. But it's only utopian if we solve that income distribution issue so that we don't have people living on the street or in tents, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, that's the way we're going to end up if we just allow things to go and we don't make an adaptation to this. Uh, so that's where my short-term pessimism comes in because I think that, that figuring all of that out and adapting to it is, is a staggering political challenge, especially if you live in the United States. Yeah, yeah. Income income distribution is uh, is is not wildly popular with the right it, side it, of politics. It is, it's, not. it's not even that wildly popular with the left side of politics. Yeah. Now I think about it. Uh, all right, number two. Uh, my question is: To what extent do, does technophilia leave us open to control and manipulation by political, military, and corporate entities? And to what extent does technophilia? make us less concerned about such control and manipulation? Should we be talking about that as well? Uh, in <laughs> Linda? Jesus. Okay. Uh, uh, okay, so in the sense of, you know what, you're going to have to do more. <laughs> in what sense? Are we talking about... Uh, I'm talking about the fact that we love our devices, we love our Facebook, we love all this stuff so much that we care less about privacy, we care less about the fact that uh, our lives can be 
spied on, manipulated, and so on by these organizations that have, because we put all our data up there. Our technophilia is also a matter of us interacting and putting data up there. So to what extent do we have to be worried about our love for these machines, our love for this technology, leaving us vulnerable and perhaps anesthetized uh, in a world where we can be controlled and manipulated? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a real issue. There's no doubt. I mean, it's, as you say, there, there is more and more information about us uh, being collected by, by governments and all kinds of organizations. In the future, as everything is going to be connected, there will be more opportunities to influence us. I mean, just in the commercial arena, you're going to see everywhere you go context-sensitive advertisements that, that know exactly... Uh, what it is you might be interested in and, and put that right in your face. So, I mean, and that's a probably, you know, one of the least disturbing aspects of this. I, mean, I, I just spent a week in China and they've got their own version of the internet, of course, that's really controlled by the government. So when everyone is connected into this big system, there are, there are um, definitely opportunities there. I mean, I think that a lot of people assumed that when the internet came to be, that it would open everything up and, and make opportunities for democracy greater, but what we're really seeing across the world is it's also become a very, very powerful tool for authoritarian, totalitarian type governments that, that are able to um, essentially control the way people are thinking because they control this, this medium. So it, it's definitely a real challenge, yeah. And of course, the more of your life you put online, the easier it becomes for things like identity theft and phishing and stuff like that. All right, number one. Um, Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good morning. Good hey. morning. Um, I'm going to start off by saying uh, I'm an old person too, but my feeling is that you old men are scared. <laughs> if you look at the young... Oh, oh. If you, you look at the young people, they're not scared of the technology. There is always going to be an upside and a downside. But it's the fear of the old people who keep on coming up with these reasons why things will fail. Young people are optimistic. And if you look back when we were young, we were optimistic. We have watches. We have calculators. That the old people said, without a slide rule, these young people are destined to be brain dead. <laughs> so I'm asking you, are you sure it's not just your fear as an old person that's making you think <laughs> that this technology is going to destroy us? You know, I think I'm 30. I've got nothing to do with this. <laughs> well, I'm 57. He, he's out of this. But I'm 57. I, I think we old people, not we old people. We old people. Uh, no, I think actually, you know, old people have a really important function to play, and that is, you know, a lot of us are parents, or if, if we don't have our own children, we teach other people because that's the way knowledge and culture gets transmitted from growing up and having experience and passing it on before you die. Agreed. So given that, and by the way, you know, some of the massive suicide rates among young people, uh, youth, teenagers, and young adults, and I don't think they're so optimistic, you know. I really don't. I think we're more optimistic in certain ways because we can see a bigger picture. And I don't think it's just the kind of fear you're talking about. Yeah, you know, you realize, if you recognize, if you're mature enough to recognize that progress goes on without you, and I hope we are, then you can say, okay, so let's, let's help it move on. And let's, you know, step aside gracefully when it's time to do that. I see no your point. No generation's ever done that, they stepped aside gracefully. But that, now, is, that is undoubtedly true. 
I don't know. But we have the technology now to, to control. Whereas in the older days, younger people just took over, we old people have the ability, the technology and the control to think that we know better and stop them. So I think it's probably our fault that they're, they're killing themselves more, not their fault. But that's always been the case. Pink Floyd, you know, saying about that when, when we were young, uh, <laughs> right? Another brick in the wall. Hey, teachers, leave them kids alone. I mean, you know, it's, that relationship has held for a long, long time. And I think things are, in a sense, less authoritarian now than they were 50, 100, 200 years ago. Martin, I'm keen to get your opinion on this. Are you fearful? I, I'm concerned. I mean, I, I do think that there is a lot of evidence to suggest that in terms of technology, things are moving faster. We, we've got an acceleration going on, uh, specifically in terms of information technology. And, uh, you know, we, we've now got technology taking on cognitive tasks. I mean, the, the machines are beginning to think. And this is something that is certainly unprecedented. Uh, so I do believe that this time is different. Although I, I, it's true that every generation probably thinks that, but I, I do think there's evidence to suggest that we're going through a genuinely new kind of disruption that is going to put just unprecedented kinds of stresses on our society and on our economy than, than what we've ever seen before. But do you recognise that in the, in the history of mankind there's always been a certain fear about technological change and there's been similar arguments about, you know, the steam train is going to destroy culture. Do you recognize, Do you see yourself as the latest chapter in that story or describe for us what is different about this time? Well, I, you know, it's hard to, to, to be sure when you're sort of in the moment because you, you can look at what's happened before and it's true that people have, have had the same kinds of feelings, but I, I do think that if you really look at what's happening with these technologies compared to what we've seen in the past, that there's something genuinely different going on. And, and you know, when I talked yesterday, I put some slides up showing what's happening to our economy. And there are ways that you can sort of see in actual economic data that there's kind of a structural shift going on, um, perhaps in terms of the relationship between workers and technology, for example. And I think that something quite similar is happening in, in the social sphere as well. So I, I, I do tend to believe that, you know, this time is really different and that we're going to, you know, that we may be at kind of an inflection point where, where we're just really going to move into a kind of a new era that's just fundamentally different from what's come before. All right, there is a question at number one. Just building on that sentiment um, with a tangible example, I'm just interested in your views on what seems to be quite um, an outdated view that video games are bad for children, when we know that Minecraft um, and the likes of those sorts of games actually improve visuospatial reasoning and, yeah. and improve their social kudos amongst their peers with, with, with nine-year-olds. What's your view on kind of becoming more of a nanny state in terms of having a responsible service of technology and video gaming for parents out there? Uh, this is what I was referring to earlier about uh, the stuff my, my wife does, developing video games for mental health. This is part of a big movement, uh, which is sometimes called Games for Change, um, or Games for... for it, it's been in education for a while now and games developed to actually help kids learn math and learn you know, history, learn language skills. But now there's a whole, it's a whole lot of stuff. Yeah, Minecraft is fantastic. I love it when my kids let me watch them you know, build stuff. It's, they are, 
there, there are, there's a list of absolutely incontrovertible cognitive skills that are aided by video games. And they include spatial organization, uh, uh, moving around obstacles, flexible solutions to difficult problems, uh, not giving up in the face of, obst uh, of obstructions and, and failures. So there's both psychological and cognitive advantages. And yeah, like let's, as I was mentioning before, um, we're using video games to teach our kids to do coding and, and Java. It's like, yeah, it's all there. It's right there. Let's use it for, uh, it's got all this power. Let's put that power to, to, uh, to use. Martin, is there anything you want to add to that? Just, uh, I think you make a point. We shouldn't generalize and talk about all video games. I, I do think Minecraft is an excellent example. My daughter plays that too. On the other hand, there are a whole lot of people that spend a lot of time playing Angry Birds, and that, that's probably... <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm actually playing it right now. <laughs> that, it's a little less easy to argue that that's a positive thing, I think. Yeah, that's true. I agree. The headline now is Martin hates Angry Birds. Uh, there is another question at one. Oh, actually, sorry. I'm going to go over the question. Sorry. You arrived suddenly. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> uh, look, you've been talking about... Um, Information technology and networking and uh, around technology. What about in biology and chemistry? Um, can you give us some of your thoughts about uh, is that going to be a competing area of um, disruption in the future? Yeah, I think it, it feels like a you question to me. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's tremendous progress in synthetic biology and and in um, and in those areas as well. I think that that may be a huge disruption. I mean, when a lot of people that focus on this, this idea of super intelligence tend to focus on machine intelligence, but um, there's an argument that it could happen biologically as well. We may, we may be looking at ways to enhance our own intelligence, either biologically or with some combination of, of biology and, and, and um, artificial intelligence and so forth. So I, I think that's going to be one of the major drivers of progress, certainly. We have three minutes left, so your question better have a yes or no answer, number one. <laughs> um, I'm kidding. It doesn't have to have a yes you. or no answer. A uh, little difficult for, for this, but um, uh, being an Asimov fan, uh, uh, Martin, I'd love you to just discuss the laws of robotics and whether um, we are moving fast enough to bring control over remote uh, assassinations, weapons, systems... Uh, I realise that as I'm a biologist as well, and, and we have invented massive capacities to kill with biological weapons, but uh, is the world working on this? And this is, to my mind, where some of Stephen Hawking's concern comes in. So that's you. <laughs> and then, uh, um, if you could, and, and Mark, could you address disease addiction and the fact that your country really came out with the 12-step processes, which are disease-type uh, approaches to dealing with addictive processes. So can you talk about uh, the way forward with your uh, theory? Yeah, I'll, I'll get rid of my part really fast. Come, come to my talk this afternoon at 2 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> That's my part. Um, as far as the laws of robotics go, I mean, they're just a famous fictional approach to it. Uh, the first law is that a robot should never harm a human being, I think. Uh, I, I just learned from someone uh, yesterday or the day before that the Russians have already built a robot that can autonomously kill people. So I, I, I see those laws as pretty much irrelevant. They're, they're, they're fiction. We've already 
move beyond, if we haven't actually moved beyond it, we will soon. We're going to have autonomous, you know, robotic weapons. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. It's inevitable. It's inevitable because things on the battlefield will unfold at such a rapid rate that it's going to be way beyond what a human being can deal with it. Just as we already see on Wall Street, we see trading algorithms that can operate much faster than a human being can. We're going to see the same thing on the battlefield. So I, I don't think the three laws of robotics are particularly relevant. Um, but the challenge remains. I mean, uh, you know, we're going to, it's going to be a real challenge in the future to, to maintain control of this technology. And as it becomes more autonomous, right now we're talking about specialized kind of autonomy. The, the real fear in the future is if the machines become self-aware and, and, and attack us. But it's, it's definitely a huge issue going forward. How did I know we would end this session with killer robots? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much, Martin Ford, Mark Lewis. And a round of applause to you for your wonderful questions. Uh, Mark, you're doing his talk later at 2 p.m. Uh, and thank you all for coming. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you.